0: Grab your Bibles with me and turn to the book of First Peter. Jake kind of covered this text a little bit last week, but I want to go to 1 Peter chapter uh, 5 and kind of dive in again there with a few verses that, again, that he kind of referenced last week. And we've been talking in this Advent series about the humility of Christ, how humble he has been. And honestly, we've spent a lot of time talking about pride. Humility is like chief enemy, okay? It's so easy to get caught in pride and so I was trying to figure out like a good story to open up this talk on humility but you don't you don't see people raising their hands saying hey I'm humble and there's a lot of stories on the internet of people who are humble and they're usually not not exactly written by themselves humble people do what they do and they don't post it to social media and so it's really hard, I find, to see. And reading through some of the summaries from biographers, you see um, sometimes they embellish somebody a lot. But you never actually hear from that person. A humble person isn't focused on getting the news out. And Michael did some research the other week. And one of the things that comes up um, as the, one of the third or fourth, what they thought were Bible verses, is this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Um, all, everybody knows like judge not lest ye be judge. And it seems like a lot of people know out of context, John three sixteen. but in research, they found that a lot of people viewed this phrase, God helps those who helps themselves as a Bible verse. And in all actuality, that is not ever named in the Bible. In fact, I would argue that from Genesis one to revelations 22, God is helping people who can't help themselves. In fact, the people who help themselves, God is continuously kind of pushing back or continuously challenging in the New Testament. And there's this picture of, for us, and this question for us is, is are we humble or, or how are we living our life? I talked about a couple of weeks ago this tension of like, is God on the throne of your life or are you on the throne of your life? And I hope you've had a lot of time to really reflect on that because once again in 1st Peter he really challenges us with the danger of what pride is. Pride is deceitful. Pride is destructive. Pride separates us from the one who we're supposed to be fully about. And so let's dive in here in the book of 1st Peter chapter 5. And let's start reading at verse 5. He says, Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The earlier context of chapter 5 is that God is speaking to the elders, to the leaders of the church. And he's challenging them. Like, you can't force people to do the things you want to do. He's challenging them as elders, us as elders, to to lead people well, to lead people like celebrate the good things in life. And I would argue that God is like telling the elders of the church, like I want you as leaders to be humble. Okay, but then verse five kind of ropes everybody into it with this idea that like, hey, all of us, right, all of us should walk in humility. All of us should be humble. And so we think about humility, and I mentioned too like this, I don't see any humble people because they're not taking selfies, okay? They're not taking pictures of everything that they're doing. They're not letting us know all the great things that they have done. You know, I think about it how many times or how many people are out there, even this morning, preaching the gospel of Christ. And they don't have a website. They don't have video. They don't have audio, right? But they're just faithfully preaching the gospel, and so all of us are called here in 1 Peter 5 to be humble, all of you. Clothe yourself in humility. And the scriptures use this picture of clothing yourself time and time again. Cover yourself in humility. Cover yourself in humility. And so if you go to Google and type into the search bar what humility is, it states that humility is a modest or low view of one's importance, humbleness. Now I always thought in a definition you weren't allowed to use the word But Google uses the word, okay? It's a low view of yourself. It's a focus that's not sitting on ourselves. It's not fixed on us. And so we would say, as a church, like we would say, because of God. I don't don't want you to look at me. I want you to look at God. I don't want you to look at Veritas. I want you to look at God. Look at what God has done. You know, God sets us in our place. He keeps us in our place. With God in the throne, it puts us in the right place. And that's why Peter says so urgently, like, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's this tension. God opposes the proud. No proud person is going to eke their way through because God opposes them. You can't worship yourself and then worship God. You can't have two gods. And, and you're not God. God opposes those who think they are something apart from him. Their creator. God beckons us. God calls us to himself. Worship me. Glorify me. I'm worthy of it. God doesn't share his throne with you or anything for that matter. So what I want to talk about today is like what it looks like to be humble. Because it isn't just this thing where we wag our finger at people and say, Be humble be humble. You guys, just do it. Like, why? How? How can I be humble? Like, what does humbleness look like? How can I do this? What is the source for humility? So let's go to verse 6, right? So God has just said, or Peter has said, like, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Okay, Peter, what should I do? Well, Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, okay? Because God opposes the proud, be humble. How? How? How do I be humble? If I am not king of my life, if I'm not in control of of anything, like how can I possibly let go of some of the things that I struggle with? Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This picture of the mighty hand of God. We've covered so many verses over the last few weeks that talk about God's power, God's holiness. You know, and it's, it's fun, you know, even the, when you think about the Christmas story and how many times you've heard Luke 2. You know, we're in a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, right? And you, you kick, maybe not you, but I, I kick into this neutral mode, like, heard it. I know it's coming next. There are shepherds out in the field, you know. But how many of us do that with God? How many of us read God in a different way, like read about God like we read about George Washington? You know what, George? He was our first president. Great guy. Had a lot to do with our government. But George Washington can't change my heart. He can't change my life. There is nothing that I necessarily do differently or am motivated by because of George Washington. I suppose in some way you could say he motivates you to to be free. Okay. But there's no, like, heart calling because, oh, George, you did it, man. I'm, I want to be like George. Probably not a lot of you are saying that. But how many of us read about God like that? Like, oh, that God, he's so big. Crazy. And then walk away from those facts, not letting them transform our lives. God's mighty. Mighty. God's God's powerful, right? And this this is a stepping stone. This fuels our humility. I don't I don't have to be in control. You you don't need to know who I am. God, God has me. God's got me, and that's a convict, that's a convicting thing for me. It's kind of like the Iowa hills. I like to ride my bicycle. And so when I go and ride some of the hills in Iowa, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die, right? My heart rate's going 170, 175. I'm seeing stars, and I'm just pushing. I'm pushing. I'm pushing, you know? And I'm like, this is the biggest hill ever, you know? And you get there, and it's kind of like that story that Jake talked about with the basketball players, right? And then they pull up the curtain, and you see some professionals across the way. Well, if I were to go ride my bicycle in Colorado, I would be humbled, Because the hills of Iowa just don't compare to the 14ers that are scattered throughout Colorado and the west. It changes my view on what I'm facing. If I can climb up one of those mountains, like, what can I do in a hill in Iowa? Dominate. But it changes my view. It, It humbles me. Thinking that I battled this small hill in Iowa and there's this huge mountain. Changes my perspective. And God has a mighty hand. We know this God. We know how he works. He humbles us. His hand, he, he sets us in our place. And he does that. But also promises. But also promises a time when your humility will be recognized. I think we struggle sometimes to say that. There's this promise for following God. There's this promise for walking in humility at the right time. He will exalt you. And there's this picture. There's this picture of us on earth striving to glorify God, striving to keep God on the throne when I want the throne so badly. And God's like, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. At the right time, you will be exalted. Trust me. And so you go through life striving and wrestling and fighting To glorify God. And then there's this opportunity in exaltation that you get to exalt him to his face. God, creator, invites you into the throne room. How awesome is that? That God takes brokenness. Even when I replace him. Like I'm like, okay God, I'm going to sit up here for a little bit. You go do something for me. Like heal that person. Or you go go do something. I'm going to sit. I like this throne. I'm just going to sit here a little bit. And God puts me in my place. And he still exalts me. He still invites me into his throne room at the proper time. It's not just a calling to, in vain, be humble, church. The calling is trust the Lord. Trust his mighty hand. Trust what he's doing over you, in you, and through you. And trust that he's got something for you in the end. The scriptures that speak about the proper time and exaltation and being in his presence are no lie. They're promises for you to grasp. Verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He's not a God that sits on his throne and says, do these things. Go do them. I know they're hard. Go. But he gives us an opportunity to cast our anxieties on him. And there's a reality that as you consider the challenge of being humble it might be humiliating. Being humble might be humiliating when you you go against the things that everyone else is doing. When you're the only person that dresses modestly. When you're the only person that doesn't drink six beers. When you're the only person that doesn't sign your kid up for every sport. By cultural standards and by the flesh, that might literally be a humiliating reality for you. And might create those anxieties in our life. And I would tell you as a biblical counselor, like, man, if I could, by the Spirit of God, help you not keep looking at the Joneses as your mark, how much anxiety would be taken off your mind? How much anxiety would be removed from you if you set your mind on Jesus Christ and not on what your neighbors thought of you or your school system? Or even your church how much would that free your mind what would it look like if i could encourage you to work as unto the lord rather than for money or for the approval of men how much anxiety would that free from your mind you got to get the projects done you got to get the paychecks you got to pay for the stuff What if we could lean humbly into God, give up on some of the stuff, and take the pressure off the work? How might that change your life? I mean, anxiety, humility, pride, they they all have this cyclone of evilness. It's so hard to be humble and keep up with absolutely everybody else. When God beckons you to know me, hey, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He's a caring God. What would it look like? What anxiety could I free from your mind if you didn't need the vacation every year? That's mind-blowing. But what if you were on vacation and you didn't need to take all the pictures and share with me everything that you eat? You know? What if you just didn't have to? What if you could just be there in the moment? What if you could truly Sabbath and rest rather than do all the things? Because you have to do all the things and you have to show all the things. What if you could just be free? Free of those anxieties. And and there's a truth that being humble might be humiliating, but God cares for you. God cares for his creation. God's working in you. He's working through you. You're under the mighty hand of God. You've got nothing to prove and no one to impress. God knows exactly your strengths. God knows exactly your weaknesses. Your neighbor may not even know those things. They think you have weaknesses. They cast those weaknesses on you. But your creator intimately knows your soul, knows your heart, knows your anxieties. And he beckons you, come, come lay them at my feet. I'll help you be humble. I'm not calling you to humility on your own. I'm walking with you. I've given you an example. So trust God. He cares for you, right? And so if we want to, if you want to, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew. And let's go to Matthew chapter 20. And Jesus uh, has had, I would call it, a kind of an awkward conversation. Two of his disciples, their mommy, comes up to him and says, Hey, uh, what are you doing with the two chairs in your kingdom who are, that are next to you? The one on the right and the one on the left. Because I've got two sons. And they should sit one on your right hand and one on your left. I mean the audacity, I think, to do that, to approach Jesus and be like, Hey, um, I I yeah, my sons are awesome, right? They are the best thing in the world. And they need to sit on both sides of you. And Jesus is like, I don't I don't think you know what you're asking. Okay, so maybe she's a little out of context, like, do you know who you're talking to? And really the flamboyant pride to say, like, hey Jesus. Uh, Save my sons. Hey, Jesus, uh, you need to, like, honor these men. Honor them, Lord. Like, the audacity of doing that, the lack of humility. And then Jesus tells his um, people, he's like, listen, this is the kind, like, the the Gentiles do this kind of stuff. Right? The Gentiles, and he's probably referring to the Romans. The Romans walk around. They've got their full armor, and they got their sword, and they're like, do this for me. And people are like, okay, I'm going to do it. And they wave their sword around and they have threats. And then we kind of hone in here on these verses that we're going to talk about. And Jesus says, we're going to do it totally opposite. Their kingdom, the Roman kingdom, the Greek kingdom says, I'm a big deal. I've got the sword. You shut your mouth and you listen. And God says, this is not going to be that way in the kingdom of God. Let's look at verse 26. It says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Twenty-seven, And whoever should be the first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for, for many. Next week, we're going to celebrate God incarnate. God coming to us as a man, being born in a manger. And what a tremendous example that is for us. What a tremendous example to see God of the entire universe. All things were created through him and for him. And nothing nothing was made without him. Coming to earth and walking a mile in our shoes. Starting out at infancy. What, What an example for him to do. And you wonder like how many times in Jesus' life did he worry about like, I wonder what the Joneses are thinking about me. Like, I am God of the universe, and here I come, and I'm just gonna be a baby. Someone's gonna pick me up, someone's gonna feed me. I created food. I knit babies together in their mother's womb, and yet I submit to this. And it's a challenge. I don't want us to be discouraged, like, I can't be like Jesus. I'm saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lean in. Lean into that level of humility. Uh, humility. Jesus goes through life submitting to the will of his Father. Even in his death, he submits to the mighty hand of God. He lives his life not worried. When the Pharisees, the religious people are like, why are you hanging out with sinners? Why are you hanging out with alcoholics? What are you doing? Aren't you Jesus, King of the universe? Yeah, I am. And I will hang out with the least of these. Because my my mighty Father, he has a purpose and a plan for my life. I can go places where you religious people can't go because you're too worried about what other people are thinking. I don't think Jesus Christ worried much about what anyone thought of him. Even his friends, when Lazarus passed away, he didn't worry about what they thought about him. He stayed away an extra couple days. Why? Because he knew the power he had from the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, if you'd been here a couple days ago, he wouldn't have died. That's okay. You think that. I had stuff to do, and now I will raise him again. We we know that, God. We we know that. Let that fuel your humility. Or let's go to the book of John. John chapter 13. And look at verses 3 through 5. Jesus acknowledges, knowing that God's, the father's mighty hand is over him. He starts by saying, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rises from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and he takes a towel, ties it around his waist, and then he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is your king. This is your king. I would picture if a king ever came to do this, he wouldn't be filling the water basin. Somebody else would do that for him. He probably wouldn't tie a towel around his waist. He probably wouldn't wash anyone's feet. I would say in my head, which you shouldn't put much stock in, this is the second most humbling thing that Jesus Christ does. Second only to his death for sinners. That Jesus Christ would wash the dirty feet of the people who he was worshiping with. I'm okay. My identity's in my father. My father has a plan. I can wash your feet. What prevents me from washing your feet? Like nobody else is washing our feet. Where's the servant for this room? They should be taking care of this for us. No problem. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. No big deal. I'm not above washing feet. I can do it. I got two hands. I got a towel here. There's some water. There's a basin. It's all set up. I'll just I'll just do it. Jesus exemplifies this humility. And you can read on further in the story, which I would encourage you to do. At no point does he say, like, guys, look at me. None of you were doing this for me. I mean, I had to do it. He doesn't like lord it over them eventually. He doesn't chastise them for doing it. He just does it. Doesn't demand recognition that the king of the world is washing your feet. He just does it. It needed to be done. And he gets on his knees and he washes their feet. Jesus knew about the mighty hand of his father, and that all authority was in it. And that he could wash the people's feet. And folks, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is in us if you believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God. You can do the dishes without broadcasting to your family the work that you have done. You can shovel the walk without taking the selfie with your favorite shovel. You can serve. You can go to the lowly without making sure everybody knows that you help the poor. And this is one of the things I love about Veritas Church. Every Christmas, there's a group of families, I don't, I don't even know how many, um, who say like, hey, we would love to support a family. Is there a family you can connect us with? And we're like, that's sweet. Praise God. Um, yeah, we can connect you with a family. Like, we'll make that happen. And you know what? I don't even know what they do for the family. I've heard they do nice things for the family. But nobody actually knows I don't think any of us know They're just like hey we want to serve we've been blessed How can we do it And I don't even know what they do I've heard good things it seems like people are smiling They're blown away And they don't even know they just serve They serve with the gifts that God's provided They use them for his kingdom And so there's this calling on us You know as we think about our lives What are we too big for What can't we do What is too lowly for you or who is too lowly for you? And, and when you have this attitude, this desire for humility, like what could possibly threaten it? I mean it seems awesome, but there is a reality that there's an enemy that's revealed as we pursue humbleness, as we pursue humility. First Peter 5:8 talks about this. He says, "Be sober minded, right? Be watchful." The devil, your adversary, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I grew up on this text, right? And I was always taught, like, be serious, be serious. Christians can't listen to comedians, okay? That, that's not what he's saying here. Okay, Christians should be the most joyful people on the earth. This is a rabbit trail, by the way, right? But there's this reality that we can be humble, we can be joyful, like we can go in, but watch out because there's somebody who's going to try to steal your humility. There's somebody who's going to try to steal your joy. There's somebody who's going to try to overwhelm you with the anxieties of this world. There's somebody who's going to say to you, Man, you live in a small house. Have you seen your neighbor's house? That's bigger. Have you seen their truck? I mean, I want a truck. Like, don't you want a truck? He, he'll be whispering in, right? And I think a lot of us don't think of Satan that way. I mean, I think we think about him like, you know, red tail and horns and stuff like that. Like, get, get that out of your head. And you're like, a new truck isn't murder. Like, I could have a new truck, but he, he just tempts you. Like, God's holding back. God's holding back this humility thing. Like, you're going to miss out. Like, if you are not bent on yourself, you're going to miss out on the raise. You got to take up your actions. You got to build yourself up. You got to, um, that's what I'm looking for. You got to let people know who you are, or you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on the raise, and you're going to miss out on the truck. You're going to miss out on the house. Like, if you do not take it up a notch, right? And he doesn't come in like a big, scary knight or a big, scary monster. But he deceives you, one pickup at a time. one item at a time. Look at your bank account. You could deserve, You deserve another five grand a year. Why didn't they give you that bonus? Right? There's this, there's this deceiver. There's this enemy, OK? So be watchful. be concerned. This walking in humility comes with war. deception and deceit. It's going to try to pull you away. He's seeking to devour you. And nothing destroys humility, like the attitude of a hard heart. And this is how the devil attacks. You know, we start thinking, like, "Am I the only one? Am I the only one serving this way? Am I the only one? I think of myself as a child. I know you guys love stories about me. One day I'll tell you a good one. I love Legos. Legos are awesome. And my mom occasionally would tell me, Hey, you gotta clean up. This is ridiculous, right? Because everyone can't walk around my room because it's it's a landmine. And I'd be like, Oh, oh I'm the only kid in the world. And I have to pick up this Mount Everest of Legos. Oh all the kids are having fun. And here I am, having to work and pick up Legos. And the devil takes your eyes off Christ on his throne and says, look at the terrible situation you're in. Nobody else is dealing with this. You could bypass all this. Go play. Go have fun. Eat, drink, be merry. And he tempts you. Maybe not with murder. Maybe not with adultery. But maybe with this innate sense of like, I'm a victim here. And God is withholding from me. It might come through piles of Legos, students. And adults, it might not be about Legos, but it's kind of the same thing. I want something different. I want something better. I'm the only one dealing with this. And in that way, the devil devours when he takes our minds off the Savior and puts it onto ourselves and our situation. So Peter warns us. He encourages us in verse 9. So then resist him. Okay. So be sober-minded. The devil's coming for you. So resist him. Peter gives us a two-pronged defense or attack against this devil who is prowling around seeking to destroy you, seeking to set your minds on you and your situation. And he says, remember your faith. Be firm in your faith. The reality that you were once lost, destined for hell, and God saved you. When the devil starts telling you like you're the only one, You are the only one dealing with a child like this. You are the only one who's lost a loss this great. You are the only one who got passed over. Remember that God didn't pass over you. Start with your faith, Christian. Stand firm in it. Resist him with your faith. God will not forget you. God cares for you. His mighty hand is over you. Resist the devil with that reality. And secondly, uh, the second reality is that you're not alone. You are not the only Christian who is walking through the trials that you were walking through. Through trouble with your child. It's amazing to me when we do podcasts or when we've done these deeper dives, the number of people who come up after us and at, to us at some point and say, I thought I was the only one dealing with that. And you're like, no, you are not the only person dealing with the stuff you were going through, and Peter recognized that and tells them. He's like, Listen, you're, you're not the only one. You're the brotherhood throughout the world. They are suffering as you are. And, folks, it's a reality that Peter's talking to a group of Christians who are under the rulership of Nero, one of the most wicked rulers that the world has ever seen, known to bind Christians and light Rome with their bodies. You know what I'm saying? dip them in oil, light them on fire. And so while we wrestle with our suffering, and I want to be careful because some of us are suffering, certainly by God's grace, not in the way that these Christians are suffering, but these people might be coming to the table and say, Nero got my brother. We were meeting in a home and Roman soldiers busted in and they killed everybody. And it's not like they just killed them. They tortured them. They burned their homes. They killed their families. And you're calling me to be humble? Like, I want some control. I've got some anxiety here. I've got reasons to be the way I am. And Peter is saying to these people, like, submit to the mighty hand of God. God God's got you. This hasn't slipped between his fingers. He is still in control. Suffer well. Suffer well. And it's like this humility looks through the suffering to the exaltation. This is going to be hard. This is going to be a hard season. But look to the exaltation. Look to the exaltation. Look back to the promises of God. God is with you now. You're under his mighty hand. And look to the exaltation. Look, it's coming. Christ is coming again. This suffering is but for a little while. In fact, other parts of Scripture talk about our lives being a breath, being a vapor that is here for a moment and gone. This suffering, this is momentary. This child rebellion, this cancer, this grief, this trial, you insert your situation, ultimately, it's small. In the eternal scheme of things. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's small. You're under the mighty hand of God. God is doing something. There's a lion seeking to devour you, using your pride, tapping your pride, saying, This is about you. And you are hurt. Get on the throne, take control of your life. This line is telling you that people are watching, and they're relying on you. And he wants you to whisper that nobody is experiencing what I'm experiencing. And all these whispers, all these attempts by this devil, this devourer, are saying, pressure, there's more pressure, there's more pressure, there's more anxiety. Everybody's looking at you, and you're not alone. You're not alone. God is with you. You're not the only one enduring. These statements aren't true. Lean into the mighty hand of God. That's why he says in verse 10, 1 Peter 5, verse 10, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Your tension, your service, your humility may seem like suffering for a little while. They might seem humiliating difficult painful but remember the mighty hand of god remember the mighty hand of god remember what god has done remember what god has done right he he called you to his eternal glory in christ remember that work remember the work he did in bringing christ to earth remember that remember how faithful he is remember he's working now though you might be like where are you remember he is working now or he's a liar and remember this call, this reminder that you will be exalted at the right time. Should your humility cause you to be suffer? Should your humility cause you to be embarrassed, ignored, overlooked? God has not overlooked you. God has a purpose and a plan. God has not dropped the ball. Okay, and that's what I want you to remember today. Right, humble people. Trust God's grace for the past, for the present, and for the future. Humble people, trust God's grace for the past, for the present, and for the future. God has made an example for us in Jesus Christ. God has said, I, you're going to be under my mighty hand. You're not going to slip through the cracks. And, and let me tell you, because I've struggled with this sometimes, I, sometimes I feel like I did slip through his hands. Like, hey, where are you? Could use a miracle right about yesterday. Where are you? And this ability and the number of people I talk to, let alone my own issues, I think, like, I am definitely the only person in the universe dealing with this. And I move away from community. I move away from people who speak truth into my life. It's an easy way to go. And honestly, guys, there are just times I don't want to be humble. I just want to be king. I don't want to submit to God. I I struggle to believe that he has my best in mind. I just want to go with what I think I know. And he tells me over and warns me over and over again. You don't know. Trust me. Trust me. Humble people trust God's grace for the past, present, and for the future. To encourage this, I want us to go to Psalms 118, verses 6 and 7. Psalms 118, verses 6 and 7. It says this. I will not fear what can man do to me. There's this picture in pride that everybody's looking at me. So I better put on a good show for you. And humility says, God is on his throne. He loves me. I'm under his mighty hand. What does it matter what you think of me? What can man do to me? The Lord, Yahweh, is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Humility can be difficult But God is working through that. And we see this attitude throughout the New Testament. If you go with me to Luke, and I'd like you to turn there because we're going to spend a moment there. Um, There's a story um, about the two issues at hand here, right? So we're in Luke chapter 18, and I want to turn to verses 9, okay? Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus talks about this. Jesus tells a parable uh, to some who trusted in themselves, right? They trusted in themselves, So they are proud people. They are prideful. They are on the throne. He's talking to the religious people, okay? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and trusted, treated others with contempt, right? I'm a big deal. You're a loser. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Person number one. You see, like, it's easy to pick on this. Like, Jesus, thanks for the easy story. Like, this exudes pride. Like, I am a righteous person. And the Pharisees are listening, and they're like, I think think he might be talking about us. And it's contrasted to with this other guy. This other guy's a tax collector. Now you need to realize that the Romans had moved into the area and they needed funding for their army. And so they needed people, locals, to gather the money, the taxes. So this guy was an enemy of the state. This guy, is he even for the Jews? What is he doing? And I don't know what he was doing, but I know where his heart was at. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to the house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This picture of two people: one boasting and what I have not done and what I have done. Look at me; I'm pretty awesome. And one who's saying, "Like I recognize, Heavenly Father, that I am a sinner." I don't even know all the areas that I've sinned. God, I need you. God, I accept your sacrifice. I accept your grace, right? And that man is called justified rather than the one who's done all the right things for maybe all the wrong reasons. There's a picture that exaltation that happens here on earth doesn't say much to exaltation in eternity. In fact, exaltation on earth ends with the earth. But the one who is humbled here on earth is repetitively told in Scripture that God will exalt you. The challenge is worth it. The embarrassment worth it. To stand for Christ here means you get to stand with Christ for eternity. And that's awesome. To come from sin and doubt and anxiety and fear and to be able to walk into the presence of God and be like, I get to be with you forever. That's awesome. Maybe that's why Peter ends this text and kind of really this whole book with verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God saves sinners. God transforms us. God takes the anxiety and the pressure off to prove ourselves to everybody. And he says, I know you're broken. I can work with that. And he displays it in his letter to us. He takes murderers and makes them leaders. He takes shepherd boys And makes them kings. He takes virgins who are following Jesus and makes them the mother of his son. He takes fishermen and says, through you, I'm going to start this church. It's going to be anchored on me. This is our God. Using the humble with the promise of exaltation in the end. Let's pray. God, we're grateful to you for who you are and how you've moved and how you work. God, and I just pray today that this church would be in awe of your mighty hand. God, that it would fuel us to let go of what the town thinks, of what the culture is saying, God, of what we're supposed to do. God, may we release those things into your mighty hand. God, grow our unbelief. Help us trust you, God, that you've got it figured out, God, and that you care for us. Help us believe that. And as we humbly walk through life, um, suffering, God, may we look through the suffering humbly and, and see the exaltation that's coming, that you win in the end. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.